1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Medieval Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I am here today with Claudine Shavannis Mazel and Linda Eipelar uh, to talk about their new book, The Green Middle Ages, The Depiction and Use of Plants in the Western World, 600 to 1600, out this year with the Amsterdam University Press.
0: Hello, Claudine and Linda. How are you? Hey, I'm fine, thank you. May, may I just make one sort of a correction? I'm Claudine chavon Mazel. It's French. Oh, yeah. Go, Claudine Chavan Mazel. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, and I'm sure it didn't do much better with Eypela, but... Yeah, it was, Yeah, it's good.
2: <laughs> Most of the times they, they completely uh, say it wrongly, but yeah, perfect. Thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. Welcome, ladies. It's really nice to talk to you today. Um, and actually, in a rare moment, we are all in Amsterdam. Yes, we are. Yeah. <laughs> Usually yeah. I'm doing this. I'm talking to somebody in California or who knows. So this is quite nice. We could be doing this uh, right here in the same city. doesn't matter. I mean, it's interesting. I'm still at my my kitchen table in Yeralta somewhere, but. Right. Office, yeah. yeah. Best place. Best place. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. All right. So uh, my first question is, how did you two get together um, meet and decide to collaborate?
0: Well, in a way, it's... In a way, it's... When I became a professor in medieval art history in Amsterdam, the atmosphere uh, was very much egalitarian. Students knew only my first name. Then there came a student named Linda to see mm-hmm. me. She shook my hands very politely and was extremely to the point. It turned out she was a secretary of a big firm and simply knew how to behave (laughs) (laughs) to start a BA. She was ambitious, serious and worked exceptionally hard. And most of all, we had a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, Claudine, it's so nice to hear this. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Claudine was a professor at the University of Amsterdam. And I was indeed an art history student at that time. Uh, I completed both my bachelor's and master thesis under her guidance and I graduated with honors. Um and yeah, we have known each other since uh, 2010.
1: Oh nice. yeah. <laughs> so is this book something that you t- you covered in class? Then? No,
0: no, no, not at all. <laughs> No, well, it's it's that's in a, in a way it's a it's a short and a long story. Um, yeah,
2: Claudine and yeah, Claudine and I got uh, along very well. And after my graduation, the, the plan arose with uh, Claudine to create an exhibition on manuscripts and early printed works. And manuscripts and early printed works that are mainly in Dutch libraries and institutions. Yeah, they are hardly uh, visible
0: to the public. And I think it's, it's, it's not fair uh, that we know our Rembrandts but don't know anything about medieval book illustration in our libraries, and they're so, so beautiful. So my interest started 100 years ago um, with my love for a medieval manuscript with plant illustration uh, when I was a student. The curator of um, the Leiden University Library, he showed me a sixth-century manuscript with a miniature of a cyclamen. I uh, took my breath away, Unbe- <laughs> uh, unbelievable, so uh, it became my dream to, to, to write my thesis about medieval manuscript illustration because it was so unknown. Um, so I did, and in the end, I became a professor in art history at the University of Amsterdam. And the funny thing is, um, plant illustration hardly appealed to art historians at that time, no way. No famous painters like Rembrandt or Vermeer did anything about plants. However, plant kept attracting me. Ten years ago, when I wanted to make an exhibition on plant uh, illustration, there was still no main interest. The museum director commented, oh no, there will be no visitors. <laughs> My green <laughs> is a modern topic. And recently we had a fantastic exhibition in the museum Krona in Uden, which is in the south of the Netherlands, and it was a fantastic exhibition. So, okay...
1: <laughs> so, um, and then as it turned out, you were right. Uh, you, you could get an exhibition together and people would want to come. And as it turns out, you could, there's definitely a book here. Um, in fact, so you two are the editors, but you're joined by several other scholars, right? Um and I'm curious, like, how did you go about collecting these people and deciding what would be included?
2: Yeah, yeah, we wanted to, to review a number of aspects uh, which resulted in chronological development, the use of plants, plants in literature and plants in book illumination. And we already knew the art historians and we found expertise amongst others Gerda van Uffelen and Gera Thijsen. Uh, they both worked at the uh, Hortus, and yeah, Gerard worked at the Naturalis Museum. Uh, yeah, they both know the botanical world, which which has its own way of research and their own scientific language, and the, that we as as art historians we don't master that. So it was a great opportunity to work with both of them and also to learn a lot uh, from them. And we also contacted uh, Jan-Willem Briet, uh, who was a doctor with great interest in history. And yeah, one of his projects was to find out more about medieval recipes and whether they were still effective. So very interesting to, to know that. And, uh, for example, uh, St. John's Wort was used uh, since the ancient Greeks for its antidepressant properties. And it, yeah, it has proven its value, and today we still use it. Well,
1: cool. um, yeah. So these and it, a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of these scholars are Dutch or local as well, right? From kind of all over, which makes this feel like feel like a community collaboration. That's very nice. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and before we go any further, if you could just tell um, our listeners kind of what this book covers. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. What's the subject material? Yeah. Ah,
0: yeah. Uh, Well, yes, okay. (laughs) (laughs) The various authors of this book focus on the period between the 6th and the 16th century. So it's quite uh, before the printing era. Um, And on manuscripts in European libraries, museums, universities, private collections especially in the Low Countries. But it, it, it's universal as well. And One of the main goals of the Green Middle Ages is to make these manuscripts known to a wider public. There's not only the content, but also the book itself. The Green Middle Ages contains a series of articles by scholars of various disciplines about how plants were used, what formed the foundation of this knowledge. And as I said, the medieval manuscripts form the core of every chapter. And what is so special, the majority of their illustrations are published here for the first time. We had to order photographs from all over the world. Uh, it took us months to, to get that done. And it's all indeed new. And the nice thing is that this book can be used by both scholars and non-scholars. It, it, it contains so many interesting illustrations that if you scroll through the book, you want to read something more about it. So this book is also interesting to the general public. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean and this isn't a question this is just a comment it's Gorgeous. It's, a beautiful, <laughs> it's enormous. It's a huge volume, beautifully illustrated. Um, and every time I open it, I see something else I want to just stare at for a while and then read out. Wow. You know, people opening it. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I, I thought immediately of several people in my life who would love to have a copy. Um, you know, I know so many gardeners and what have you and just it's it is a wonderful book. So, listeners, you don't want this one on Kindle. You want to get a hold of it. That's um, wonderful. Okay, so let's get into some of the arguments that you make. So, you write in here that classical antiquity is the base of knowledge for the medieval world, and I think most people tend to see. You know, a lot of people think of the medieval world as the Dark Ages, right? But. You would argue
2: not at all. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you
1: comment on that.
2: Yeah. Yes, of course, <laughs> yeah, it's so colorful. <laughs> yeah, the, the Western tradition uh, is based upon uh, the Dioscorides, uh, a Greek doctor who lived in the the, the first century, and and Dioscorides he wrote the materia medica, and as a physician he collected uh, six hundred uh, plants and uh, more than 2000 recipes, really a lot. And he obtained his information from earlier writings, local sources, and his own experience. Um, And his knowledge remained normative for the Western world until the late 18th century. And also Pliny the Elder, uh, who died in Pompeii (laughs) at the outbreak of the Vesuvius, Yeah, that 79 Christian era uh, was of uh, uh, yeah, vital importance. Uh, Pliny wrote an en- encyclopedia uh, consisting of 37 volumes uh, titled the Naturalis Historia with facts about nature and the cosmos and used as many of the sources as Dioscorides uh, knew about. Then we have, uh, yeah, the, the fourth century uh, saw the work of the Apuleius Platonicus, which was a compilation of earlier writers, including Pliny and this uh, Dioscorides. And Apuleius copied everything from his predecessors, and ending up <laughs> um, with some sort of small en- encyclopedia of hundred of hundred and fifty plants called the Herbarius. And he included the names of plants in different regions of Europe, which even today is quite handy (laughs) as a compact compact illustrated text. It served as a very practical manual or reference work used by the monastics, uh, whose task it was to care for the poor and sick. And their medical care was mainly based on these ancient texts. Um, the information did not always have a reliable character. This is probably uh, yeah due to the fact that this is a partly a compilation a compilation of texts that had previously be, been uh, passed down orally. And for a good example, for instance, is the advice to tie a bunch of plantain under the chin in case a headache. <laughs> and uh, yeah, now nah, yeah, Re- reliable or not, uh, the Apulius Platonicus work uh, became the manual of uh, choice for monastics and uh, many copies can be found in medieval monastery libraries
0: and from them found their way to uh, public libraries, yes. especially in France. Yeah. So, and there's another underlying very important thing is that One of the rules of Benedictine cloisters was that the inhabitants had to write and read aloud. And for that reason, works by classical authors, written in Latin, were collected in Christian monasteries and were copied time and again, over and over. Knowledge in Latin spread around Europe together with the Christians and also the lettering. The task of copying texts was taken over by universities from the 12th century onwards. Arabic of Arab academics texts became very popular with the school of Salerno in Italy and Spain in the 12th century. And with them, the theory, and that's uh, too complicated the story to uh, dive into, but um, there's the theory of the four humors was reintroduced. Humoral theory was a unified theory of medicine before the invention of modern medicine for more than 2,000 years is a system invented by Hippocrates and Galenus, who explain that man has four humours dominated by blood, phlegm, black, and yellow bile. And to keep, to keep a, a, a human in balance, um, you need to eat certain plants. Um, so for example, if you have a phlegmatic temperament, you need to eat sweet melon. That gives you a sort of boost. Um, mustard is beneficial for people with a cold and wet temperament, such as the elderly, in winter in the mountains. So, so it goes on. <laughs> so they're very strange stories, but still, sometimes you can understand it, sometimes you can't.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll keep that in mind as I age. The age <laughs> I need uh, more more mustard in my diet. Yeah, <laughs> good idea. <laughs> So I'm seeing medical books, right? These tend to be medical books. Um, is this is this it? What kind of books from the classical era make it through to the medieval and then the case? More. Yeah,
0: it's it's much more than than just medicine. Um, the te- the, all the texts that have survived uh, are about practical knowledge, for instance, food, medicine, pigments, literature like Ovid, uh, whatever, and religious and history. So and we've got many, many of those texts that well, everyone who is interested in, in ancient texts will tell me. But next uh, to the Encyclopedias by Dioscorides, Pliny and Apuleius, there are so many, many sources. And I will tell you one of a very strange story. Astonishing Survival is a first century, first century book attributed <laughs> to, to Marcus Gravius Apicius, which was copied by mere chance in the 9th century and then again in the 15th century and then it became printed from him we know all sorts of recipes uh, for instance an, an easy one uh, boiled carrots are served with salt pure oil and vinegar that's okay isn't it or complicated soup of lettuce leaves and onions boil the vegetable in water with baking soda wring them out chop, chop finely in a mortar, grind pepper, lavage seeds, celery seed, dried mint, onion, garum, oil, and wine, and then it's okay. <laughs> you can visit all these recipes in um, uh, online today, and you've got another source. Yeah,
2: Ovid. it. Yeah, in yeah, in his uh, metamorphosis, uh, he describes uh, the dinner um, which the poor uh, Philimon and Baucis prepare for two travelers who arrive at their home. So it's also a famous story. They, they do not know, but uh, it will turn out that the travelers are caught. And uh, Philemon cleans the table with a bunch of freshly picked mint herb and play, it places their olives, endive, uh, radishes, cottage cheese, and eggs, uh, which were briefly swirled in the ashes. Uh, in the center, Philemon places uh, a honeycomb. And after the main course, nuts, figs, dried, dates, prunes, apples, and crepes. So, yeah, <laughs> a, a,
0: a, a good, a, a <laughs> a good, good meal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there are also religious, religious. texts. Yeah. It's very simple. The Bible is an old text. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are over 100 plants mentioned in the Bible. And you know of palm trees, olive trees, and maybe mm. about burning bushes. Lesser known is the Mandrake. Maybe you have heard about it uh, from Har- Harry Potter, yeah, it was no a Harry Potter book. <laughs> it's a plant whose roots look like a human being, and it was famous for its love-inducing effect. When used too much, and one will die. It will stream and harvest it, and will kill everybody around it. It's nice for Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, he has those the things on his. Oh list. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it already appears in the Old Testament when Jacob's wife Rachel asked the other wife Jacob uh, of Jacob Leah. If her son will bring some mandrake apples from the field and the love potion works, the result is her first child, Joseph, later followed by Benjamin. And also other many, many, many other authors like Shakespeare used that in in Romano and Juliet, but that's not ancient anymore. So I (laughs) stop. (laughs)
1: all right so loads they're absolutely all over is what i'm seeing yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. these mentions are everywhere that's of course the bible i hadn't thought about that as a source that's a (laughs) fabulous source um there's a really fun story there's this character named (laughs) euphemerism euphemerism who along with Isidore seville they play an essential role in translating the from the classical to the medieval era um, can you talk to me about this? What happens here?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, Isidore of Seville is indeed, uh, yeah, he is uh, one of the most crucial links uh, between uh, classical antiquity and the Middle Ages. And he lived in the 7th century and was Archbishop Bishop of Seville. Uh, he wrote uh, Aethemolimus. Sorry, it's very difficult to pronounce. (laughs) It is an encyclopedia of 20 books and compiled everything he considered of value in classical heritage. And we are talking about 10 centuries of knowledge. Um, the interesting thing is that Isidore, uh, for example, writes about the cult Apollo as the founder of medical science, but makes no mention of a mytholo- mytholo- logical, uh, mythological sorry, provenance. Isidore introduces other persons who had to do with medical science and interweaves then the classical world with the medieval era. Uh, as an archbishop, a a bishop, Isidore would not recognize pagan gods as Apollo or Artemis. Isidore placed their tradition into a fictional historical context without a hint of divinity. This effort is called... Euhemerism, which presumes that mythological accounts uh, originated, originated from historical events. Thus, Euhemerism is named uh, after the Greek writer Euhemerus, and he lived uh, he who lived in the the first century um, before the Christian era.
0: Yes, and, and because of his great authority and influence, the Encyclopedia of Isidore was one of the most popular, frequently read books of the Middle Age. It was read, copied, printed far into the Renaissance. So it's only after 1500 that Isidore was overtaken by authors with a more modern and science-based approach.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and the, the encyclopedia is exactly what modern people would think an encyclopedia is, right? It's this list of things
0: that's... <laughs> I think even Isidore is now the uh, god or the protector of the computer. (laughs) Oh, that's what the the Roman clergy has said that. I should pray to him more often. or (laughs) I'm willing
1: to sacrifice a lot to him (laughs) if that will save my computer trouble.
2: That's a great idea. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, that is good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Things I learned during this podcast. Mm. Okay, so we've got this huge source material that comes from the like the classical world is added to in the Middle Ages is understood, translated. So loads of people are using them, right? So, um, like, let's start with monastics. What do people in monasteries use this plant knowledge for?
0: Well, in a way, it's a, it's an easy answer. Monastic monastic used their knowledge to heal people and to feed the poor, Almost all their knowledge was based on the classical authors. So the monastic garden was filled with herbs created by God, of course, known to the monks from generation to generation, and from which they permitted to make medicines. And the options of monks was limited. They were not allowed to cut into flesh, etc. They could practice bloodletting and administer laxatives, stimulate sweating and vomiting, But nothing more. It was important that none of the interventions should lead to the death of a patient. You can understand that. Experimentations with medicine were therefore risky and better avoided. So monastic stuck to the traditional prescriptions. That's it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. So we have these monasteries who use them. And then in in the high Middle Ages, we see the rise of the university as, you know, Um, several important European cities um, get their get universities develop university faculties many still within a religious context right Um, and this kind of knowledge becomes the province of scholars so what is it uh, our forebears do with it
0: (laughs) maybe you had forebears from the monastic area as well would we never know universities were quite aware of their responsibility one should not simply copy a recipe, but test it first. So more important, even readership and audience change from the monasteries to citizens and universities. Now, it's no longer just the monks who can read and write, but normal people who want to know what is healthy. So there will be a plant book for the lady with pretty pictures. So it's, And it's nice to collect them. And it's nice to collect plants. And it's, not, it's, it's nice to discuss it with in between each other instead of understanding only a authority. Okay.
1: And then this we see, I mean, to continue our chronological story, we see more the rise of the printing press means that more of this information goes elsewhere. Right. And now just wealthy, educated citizens who can read now have this knowledge. And what's of interest to them?
2: Well, yeah, if you could read, you, you like to read how to stay healthy and uh, had a book uh, copied on health. So from 1450, 1500, one could buy a printed book. And uh, for example, the Taquinum Sanitatis not only for reading, but also for visual pleasure. There was a nice, uh, nice illustrations in it. And some, cop- uh, some copies uh, were, were really uh, rich, le- richly decorated. In this book, uh, yeah, one could read about the effects of uh, foods, the seasons and the regions where the product is effective. For example, uh, garlic, garlic is effective against poison and intestinal worms but bad for the eyes, uh, also bad for the brain, the kidneys, and the lungs. Mm -hmm. And moreover, it causes thirst. These ill effects uh, can be counterbalanced, uh, we read that, by combining uh, combining it with vinegar and oil. And it was also important when traveling to find the right plant abroad. Uh, Then the the Apollaeus herbarium uh, could come in uh, handy. Uh, as different names are mentioned uh, next to each plant. So that was really handy at that time.
1: (laughs) So household management, kind of the same thing you're seeing monastics doing as well, just in a domestic sphere. All right. So, Linda, what was your favorite thing? What was your favorite part of working on this book?
2: Oh, difficult question. <laughs> it's difficult to only mention one thing. Uh, there are so many interesting aspects. Uh, it was interesting to dive into the medieval world. And the piece I wrote was uh, out of uh, sheer uh, curiosity about medieval depictions of uh, plants from a 12th century book. And I didn't quite understand what was depicted. Not quite what was meant. To be allowed to, uh, yeah, to be allowed to uh, explore that—that uh, that was uh, exciting. Why, for example, does a depicted tree look like uh, someone has drawn uh, peacock feathers? <laughs> yeah, at course, it doesn't look uh, like drawn, a drawn tree uh, at all. And after uh, literature uh, research, it turns out uh, that the author painted a palm tree with deep uh, sy- symbolic uh, meaning. And of course, yeah, it's fun to, to uh, then pass on that knowledge to others. We do that uh, through this book, but also gave lecture series in Leiden with a PowerPoint for an audience. Uh, It was also quite fun to teach children uh, about this uh, subject. And uh, yeah, the book has triggered uh, triggered a lot. Uh, I found uh, the cooperation with uh, Claudine uh, to be special. And we were always cheerful and positive at work over many years. Yes. many many years. <laughs> yeah, also
1: with the other authors. Yeah,
2: also yeah. with the other authors, of course. Yeah, yeah.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. That's it's special, right? This process of doing. I love it when I talk to people who've edited a book together and they're still friends.
0: Oh yes, 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 yes we are. <laughs> we, we, yeah. We've lost a few, but. <laughs> no, no. She's joking (laughs) Claudine, same question for you Yeah, well, diving into a new subject is always exciting I was trained as a professor in Christian iconography To tell you uh, how does Christ look like What about Mary Uh, and, And why does she stand on the left hand of the cross And why on the right hand And whatever, whatever I can explain entire portals in French cathedrals for you So this was quite sort of new and but the, the, the manuscripts in question were really beautifully illustrated and that many had never been um, published before. So it was a discovery after a discovery. We kept on saying, oh, wow. Uh, and at the same time, many scholars are working on the history of medicine. That's not a new subject. And so want to know about the content of a manuscript, but few are interested in the manuscripts themselves. Art historians have no feeling for the illustrations since most of them, and maybe all, are copies from earlier manuscripts, and thus have no artistic quality. Eh? <laughs> but... <laughs>
1: She's
2: making a gesture.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: Pure <laughs> frustrated. This is nonsense. Yes. This is
1: what that gesture <laughs> said.
0: So <it's>, especially people <laughs> who are interested in, in, in manuscripts, the, the subject of a, a, a handwritten book. That's of fantastic interest. So That was fantastic. And together, uh, working together with various specialists in this field, was the most un- enjoyable thing. So...
1: Yeah. So, yeah. All right. This sounds great. It sounds like it was a really good experience.
0: Yes. 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 Of course. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So what's going on? What's next? Are we still working with plants? Will there be more exhibitions, or have you moved on to something else now?
2: Well, yeah. Plants will always be our interest. Um, and it's uh, yeah, by the focus on green plants today, uh, more people will dive into the the green uh, material. And in yeah, in two thousand thirteen, there was no interest in plants. Uh, and now now it's a topic these yeah. days. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and, and also I think uh, people will get more interest in people like um, what, what what's her name? The 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 the, the woman I don't like, um, Hildegard van Bingen. <laughs> Everybody knows about of Bingen. She is so fantastic. But in medicine and plant history, she didn't mean a lot. But I want to learn more about why is it so important in her time and why people think now that she's important. And I think she's not important, but I have to explain that, I think. Uh, so there are, so the, the academic world changes with popularity and women, especially women who, and, um, I can say that because we are women. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's, um, uh, there's all, all the time there will be new, new discoveries. And that's what is so fascinating.
1: Yeah. Wonderful. So I have one last question. Do you know about the woman who's doing the urban herbology course in park Freckendal?
0: No, but there are many uh, uh, courses and uh, places where you can study the green material as a, as a high value uh, thing in the world. Uh, and I think it will become more and more important because in the end, we will only eat vegetables, maybe. <laughs> uh, but it's always a good idea. But keep in mind that a few hundred years ago, we didn't drink coffee. We didn't drink tea. We had never heard about tomatoes until Columbus brought them home. We did not know about potatoes, ananas, corn, whatever. One did never eat raw vegetables. No, 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 no raw vegetables. So plant food has changed fundamentally. So it will keep on changing. And at the same time, I think that, uh, or that's, that supermarkets will also learn their lessons. So I yeah. hope. We hope. We hope. All right,
1: thank you so much for joining me today. This was absolutely delightful. Uh, thank you for having us. <laughs> kind. It was quite nice. Yeah. I, oh, I could God. tell you weren't, you weren't sure about it, but no, it was, it was oh, lovely. We'll, um, see, we'll see, we'll see. Thank go. you very much for the interview. It intro. was fun to do. Yeah, really fun. <laughs> uh, Our okay. listeners, once again, it's the Green Middle Ages um uh, with Amsterdam University Press there'll be a link on our website um, to help you get get your hands on it and uh, definitely check it out this also this is this is not only are you going to want to read it you're going to want to gift it there is a gardener in your life who'll want it but uh all right thanks very much and once again all right take care ladies thank you thank you you. (laughs) bye-bye